Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this memorial edition of Where Did the Road Go? I just found out today that Walt Thornhill passed away. Uh, he passed away on the 7th of February, 2023. Uh, Walt Thornhill, uh, he liked to be called Wall. Uh, his obituary says, uh, passed away peacefully in Canberra, surrounded by family, much loved and devoted husband of 57 years of Faye, loving father of Nikki, Tanya, and Bronwyn. I think it's Bronwyn. And their partners, Gal and Brian, uh, physicist, cosmologist, natural philosopher, independent thinker. Wall was a world-leading theorist of the Electric Universe cosmology, the chief science advisor to the Thunderbolts Project, and a science consultant for the Sapphire Project. I got to talk to Wallace uh, twice. I had Wall on in 2014 and 2015. He was one of the people that when I started doing this show, I definitely absolutely wanted to talk to, and I'm glad I got to do that. Um, he was only 81 when he passed away, which, I mean, he achieved a lot in his life. So there's that. Uh, but I was kind of shocked when uh, I got the email from Thunderbolts saying he had passed away. Uh, they didn't announce it till the 12th, which is today. So I had planned on remastering and re-releasing his shows as it was. And now I figured now's the time to do that. So uh, thunderbolts.info is the Thunderbolts site with tons of stuff from Wallace on it. Uh, you can go check that out. And uh, this is the two interviews I did with him early on in the history of the show. For some reason, the sound quality on the second one is worse than the sound quality of the first one. I don't know why, because it was 2015, and that was a long time ago. Uh, but clearly, my equipment did not improve between the two. Anyway, it's a very interesting conversation, and uh, I am honored to have uh, had him on the show and gotten to talk to him about this stuff, which really had a major impact on my life when I discovered the Electric Universe stuff. So here you go, the two shows I did with Wal Thornhill. And it's my honor tonight to have with us uh, Wal Thornhill, Wallace Thornhill. And uh, you're coming at us live from Australia, aren't you? That's right. And uh, you are, well, honestly, your work completely changed the way I look at the universe. Uh, the, your work with the Electric Universe, it was just, as soon as I came across it, it was just so astounding and so mind-boggling and, and, and it, partially in its simplicity it was just so obvious once you know what to look for mm, that's the basis on which I work <laughs> do you want to tell people a little bit about where the initial theory of the electric universe came from well uh, there have been uh, headlines in the paper uh, back or some decades ago when Hans Alfane was working on plasma cosmology and it was then called the electric universe and also another pioneer in uh, plasma science, and I'll talk about that in a minute, uh, Winston Bostick also uh, was producing galaxies in his electric discharge experiments. So it does have a long history. Also, going back uh, more than a century, uh, in Norway, Christian Berkeland um, was reproducing the aurora and uh, rings and sunspot activity on 
globes, magnetised globes inside a discharge chamber. So the ideas behind it have been around for a long while, but for me it was a process of discovery, uh, working from an initial idea that was uh, presented to me before I got to university, which suggested that um, the solar system <clears throat> that we see today is not the one that our ancient uh, forebears and our prehistoric ancestors witnessed. And that, for me, was a huge challenge because, uh, of course, the immediate uh, answer to that was that it disobeys Newton's law of gravity and Newton's dynamics. And so this was a huge hurdle to uh, face. But out of it all came a synthesis, which has um, finally um, produced what you might call a big picture, a new cosmology, uh, has only been in place for the last uh, decade or so. All right. And what, what role did uh, Velikovsky have in all of this? Well, Velikovsky was the one who uh, provided the... Um, this uh, impossible idea that uh, Venus was a comet in the memory of mankind. And uh, I read that while I was at high school, and uh, I was the only um, <clears throat> science undergraduate who spent a lot of time in the sociology shelves at the library reading myths and legends of uh, various uh, ancient races right around the world. And in doing so, I found that he had made a case to answer. I mean, you can argue with the details of what he said and also bringing it down into historical times, which I think created a huge hurdle for him, which may have been unnecessary. But uh, the basic thesis, I found uh, he had uh, provided solid evidence for it, and it was probably the most uh, critical thing that had to be answered. If Venus was a comet within the memory of man, how did it achieve the most circular orbit of any planet in the solar system in a matter of a few thousand years. This meant that Newton's uh, law of gravity uh, is not the only thing that's acting, and this was the challenge that uh, Velikovsky threw down to astronomers, and they just uh, ignored it on the basis that it disobeyed Newton's laws. But he was saying, no, you have to look at Newton's laws because the ancients also said there were uh, colossal thunderbolts exchanged between planets when they come close to one another, and this obviously plays a part in the mechanism. But that was too much <laughs> back in the 1950s, <laughs> and it's still too much, I think, uh, because uh, you won't find any mention of electricity in any textbook on astrophysics or astronomy. Which just seems absolutely bizarre to me. You would think even if they didn't believe in the electric universe theory, they would still include that in, to some level in, in astrophysics and such. Yes, we have on record uh, one classic uh, comment by a leader in astrophysics uh, who said, we know there's electricity out there, but it doesn't do anything. And yet <laughs> here we're talking about an, a force which is 10 to the 39th power times stronger than gravity. So even a tiny amount of electricity acting in space will swamp any gravitational effects. Now, obviously there are mathematical formulas for gravity and stuff, but scientists don't technically know what gravity is, do they? That's true. Uh, Newton had the sense to say that he didn't know how gravity worked, just that his equation worked. Uh, and to think that Einstein answered the question uh, is a mistake because all he did was to use a form of um, hyperdimensional geometry to try and explain, to, to try and actually describe, not explain, what uh, the effects of gravity are. But when you look at Newton's law, the thing that stands out when you look at it closely is that there is no mention of time. Time doesn't mm -hmm. play any part, which means that gravity operates instantly. 
And uh, this is something which, of course, in modern physics is totally uh, anathema. It's, it's not allowed because Einstein said information cannot be transmitted faster than the speed of light. Well, the sun knows where the earth is right now and the earth knows where the sun is right now. And it's very simple to show that that's the case because if it weren't so, you would have an effect. Uh, the force between the sun and the earth would not be pointing directly at the sun. It would be slightly offset. It's, and it would have the same effect as you swinging uh, a weight around your head on the end of a piece of string. Uh, if it weren't for the string, the object would fly off. Well, there's nothing holding the earth to the sun except for the force of gravity. And if this force was acting not directly towards where the sun is right now, but where it appears in the sky, there would be a force which would sling all of the planets out of the solar system in a very short space of time, measured in maybe tens of thousands of years, not in millions or billions of years, which is supposed to be the, <laughs> the age of the solar system. Of course, what hmm. Velikovsky's uh, uh, breakthrough meant is that the entire history of the solar system, the Earth and the human race, is not what we think it is. What we're being taught is a, um, a kind of a fairy tale, a myth. All right. What, what would you say the biggest problems with the standard model of, in science is? Well, there are many. Uh, the biggest problem when you talk about uh, the stars and the planets and so on is that the present cosmology relies on the quantum theory at the subatomic level and on Einstein's general theory of relativity and gravity at the largest level. Now, gravity is supposed to control uh, the orbiting of stars and galaxies, the planets around the, the stars and so on. But at the quantum level, uh, you're talking about activity that goes on inside the atom and which no one understands. I mean, uh, uh, the top scientists, uh, quantum physicists, say nobody really understands uh, the basis of quantum theory because you have spooky effects. Uh, so you've got these two incompatible theories. The two don't work together. Uh, so the answer, I mean, the physicists have been looking for quantum gravity now to try and draw the two together. But all of this is uh, just a form of mathematical gamesmanship. Uh, the electric universe uh, actually follows the uh, lead of the 18th and 19th century scientists who were trying to simplify things. But today we have a Nobel Prize which encourages people to invent new forces, new particles, so you have dark matter and dark energy and all sorts of nonsense, which is a purely uh, mathematical uh, endeavour and has no real explanation in terms of um, the physics or, or classical physics. And that is the big problem which the electric universe addresses. And I, I had read somewhere that there were it's, there are seven unproven theories that need to be in place in order for the Big Bang Theory to actually work. Is that accurate? Well, I would say that uh, the Big Bang uh, Theory is not even a theory. It's just a story. It's an, um, a version of the creation myth that uh, uh, the Christian religions and so on um, uh, uh, are based on, you know. In the beginning, there was a miracle. There was let there be light, and uh, everything was sort of created out of nothing. Uh, it's the same with the Big Bang. Uh, no one, no physicist knows what matter is or how you create it. So to say that uh, the Big Bang created all of the matter out of energy is pure nonsense because nobody knows how you do that. It's a miracle. 
and uh, it's no less a miracle than the biblical one. Okay, what, what does the Electric Universe say about the beginning of our existence, of our, of our universe? Well, the fact is that uh, the astronomer Halton Arp, who died last December, unfortunately, uh, has been named by some top astronomers uh, like uh, Sir Fred Hoyle and the Burbages, um, Jeffrey and Margaret, and others as the modern Galileo because uh, his work on uh, peculiar galaxies and an atlas of pe peculiar galaxies showed him that uh, quasars, which are these objects which are supposed to be highly redshifted and at the ends of the universe, uh, were actually nearby and were being ejected from the centers of active galaxies. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because the whole idea of the Big Bang sprang from the idea that redshift indicated the speed with which something is moving away from us. But Halton Arp was able to show that the redshift, most of it, was due to the youthfulness of a body. So all these things which are supposed to be at the ends of the universe are actually nearby and part of a family structure of galaxies giving birth to companion galaxies and so on, uh, which is a completely different picture. There is no expansion of the universe that he could uh, discern. But his work was uh, ignored, and then when somebody tried to discredit it, they used statistical techniques, which was typically designed to fail. So um, his work has not been seriously addressed. But that paints a completely different picture of cosmology and the, the origin of the universe, the origin of um, the matter in galaxies and so on. And uh, the electric universe fits with it perfectly. So I would suggest that um, the first step for cosmologists is to look at what Edwin Hubble actually said. He felt that the uh, expansion of the universe was the least likely option for his discovery. But nobody uh, teaches you that anymore. <laughs> and so the electric universe doesn't postulate a beginning necessarily. No, we, all we say is that we're ignorant of how matter is formed. Uh, we're ignorant of uh, the extent of the universe, its age. Uh, and its origin, and I think this is a perfectly reasonable uh, place to be in the 21st century. Um, you know, why should we think that in the last few microseconds of our existence on this planet that we've suddenly got all the answers? Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, it really is a an incredible arrogance on our part to even suggest such a thing. Now, now just recently you posted a video about the, uh, oh, and I forgot what it is, the uh, the background, the proof of the Big Bang that they came up with. Oh, yes, the uh, cosmic microwave background. Yes. Uh, the, well, that, of course, uh, was based on a pure assumption, and the initial estimates of the, uh, the temperature of this radiation uh, by those who subscribed to the Big Bang theory was way out. You know, it was, it was actually, uh, there were much closer estimates by those people just using a classical approach, uh, you know, the um, starlight the amount of starlight around you would expect that kind of uh, level of radiation at that temperature. But the Electric Universe points out that the signals that have been received recently, which show a uh, polarization of the magnetic field, which uh, follows a rotary pattern, it's quite a large pattern, and uh, it is uh, not explained except by the Big Bangers as some kind of uh, effect caused by this incredible expansion uh, phase right in the at the at the earliest 10 to the minus 36 or 10 to the minus 37 of a second i mean it, 
just even to suggest such a thing uh, shows the incredible hubris of these people. Anyway, the Electric Universe has said for a long time that this radiation they're detecting is not from the uh, edges of the universe, otherwise it would throw shadows. Objects nearby would throw shadows and they don't see such shadows. But the other aspect is that the electric power that flows through galaxies takes the form of Birkeland currents which have a rotary magnetic field, polarized magnetic field. And this seems to be exactly what these people have discovered. But of course, when all you have is a big bang, uh, as your <laughs> as your uh, model, uh, everything has to be fitted to that, and of course, this is what happens. Now, what about the Higgs boson? That was supposedly the thing that was going to prove how gravity works. Well, it was supposed to show or as an explanation for why matter has mass. Right. Well, that was one of the silliest ideas ever, and we've spent more than thirteen billion dollars chasing uh, that rabbit down that hole. The reason is that if anyone cared to look at the equation that most people, uh, or the equation most known by everyone, E equals mc squared, it's telling us simply that energy, mass, and the speed of light are all properties of matter. And uh, therefore, mass is a, an intrinsic property of matter. It doesn't have to be imposed by some uh, imaginary particle uh, external to normal matter. I mean, it really is an incredible thing to suggest that matter doesn't have energy. Because uh, we know that when you split the atom, uh, you know, there's plenty of energy. Hmm. Well, what do you think they found when they found the Higgs, the Higgs boson? When you smash particles together with sufficient energy, you get short-lived resonant states of matter, which show up as this incredible zoo of uh, short-lived particles. They have no real significance, uh, except that you may be able to determine something about the substructure of uh, particles. But since people are not looking uh, uh, in the right way at the debris and so on, uh, they're not going to find the answer. Uh, you have to have the right model when you design an experiment, otherwise your interpretations go astray. And this is one of the big problems in physics at present. There's a lot of wonderful work being done by uh, you know, uh, scientists, uh, a lot of great experimental work and observational work, uh, but it's all being destroyed by the theorists uh, who are just playing mathematical games. Hmm. Um, now, when it comes to black holes, dark energy, dark matter, I noticed you, from reading Thunderbolt's articles, mm -hmm. uh, one, of your, one of your sites is thunderbolts.info. Yes. Um, and that's where I first really started to learn about this stuff. And from reading the articles on there, when they had announced they found the biggest uh, black hole ever discovered or whatever, my brain immediately was able to read the article and take it apart and realize that what they were trying to say and what they were actually discovering were two different things. Yes. They're, and it was amazing to me that that's, that's so easy for them to just put that information out there and make these giant assumptions and these giant leaps when all they were really finding were a couple of... Uh, well, gamma rays and X-rays, I think, is the only thing they had actually discovered. That's right. Yes, the problem that uh, modern cosmology faces is that uh, they see very concentrated outbursts of um, energetic radiation. And when all you have is the, you know, the weakest force in the universe, gravity, to drive these outbursts, then you have to postulate in, uh, incredible concentrations of matter despite the fact there's no indication that you can actually compress matter to the uh, extent that they require, uh, and also that it uses a physics which treats uh, matter in a way which is non-physical. 
In fact, we have one of our um, members of our, our Thunderbolts team, uh, Stephen Crothers, has uh, shown that the, <coughs> pardon me, the mathematics behind black holes is flawed uh, in about three or four different ways. Uh, and he has challenged the leading lights uh, in uh, in theory uh, in uh, black hole theory to point out where he's wrong. And the arguments are so simple that you can actually state them in plain English and people can follow it. Uh, so I recommend having a look at Steve Crothers' work. Uh, he has suffered at the hands of academia as a result of doing this. Uh, so now he's sort of independent. Uh, he attended a lecture in uh, Europe w on black holes where he was invited to speak. But uh, when he spoke and pointed out all of the faults, he said no one would talk to him. And the, and the funny thing is that all of the papers that followed uh, continued the mistakes and ignored what he'd said as if he'd never spoken. And unfortunately, this is typical. Um, you know, when you challenge a cherished belief, and they are beliefs, they're, no, they're not real science, uh, you get the same kind of um, uh, treatment as anyone who uh, challenges somebody's beliefs. But the black hole theory is nonsense from beginning to end. Where you have uh, a concentration of mass, you have a concentration of energy. And the easiest way to get a concentration of energy has been shown by uh, plasma scientists uh, in the laboratory in what's known as a plasma focus, a, a dense plasma focus. And here you can concentrate all of the energy from a room, a huge room full of capacitors into something which is uh, a millimeter or so across, a tiny little donut. Now, this is what we have at the centers of galaxies. Only it's not a few millimeters across. It might be the size of the solar system. But it's a concentration of relativistic particles, uh, which obviously have tremendous mass in a small volume, but it's nothing like a black hole. And also, it has the tendency to um, become unstable and emit jets along the uh, axis of the donut. So, and this is exactly what we see, of course. So the, the plasma cosmologists have a model which can explain what we see in deep space without recourse to um, all of these uh, crazy and mathematically incorrect theories about uh, concentrations of mass like neutron stars and black holes. And, and one of the things about the electric universe theory is that you can replicate this stuff in a, in a lab. That's right. So you can you, go on. Yeah, one of the problems, of course, that astronomers have always complained about is that uh, they can't replicate their gravitational models in the lab because gravity is so weak. However, um, plasma cosmologists have been able to perform experiments using the highest energy electric discharge um, equipment in the world, like at the Sandia Laboratories, the Z-Pinch machine. And you stand back uh, a kilometre or two with X-ray telescopes to watch the experiment, and then it takes costs you about a hundred thousand dollars to uh, repair the damage afterwards. The energy is so concentrated and so powerful. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we're looking at in deep space when we look at these concentrated bursts of X-rays and gamma rays. Okay. Um, when it comes to quasars, as you mentioned earlier, what do they have to do with galaxy formation? Well, the, um, the so-called uh, black hole, the little donut at the center of a galaxy, which um, occasionally becomes unstable and emits particles in beams, uh, actually produces matter at close to the speed of light. And uh, over time, Helton Arp found that uh, it formed knots of matter, 
which then gradually gained in mass over time and slowed down and their redshift um, decreased with time in steps, in quantum steps. And this gives you a clue that uh, quantum phenomena are basically an electrical resonance phenomenon which uh, can actually um, operate on galactic scales. So there is no dichotomy between the galactic scale and the subatomic in the electric universe. All of this stuff comes together and becomes simple to understand. Uh, the quasars go on then to become themselves. Uh, they slow down and go into orbit about the main galaxy and become companion galaxies. Or they become uh, safer galaxies and so on, which themselves give birth to other quasars. And so you have families and you can actually determine the genealogy of uh, galactic families. It, it paints an entirely different picture. It's almost a biological picture of uh, our um, position in, in uh, the scheme of things. When, uh, when Einstein died, he had just, uh, if I remember right, just given Velikovsky approval to do more research on the electrical properties of planets. And, of course, that went away with Einstein's death. What do you think would have happened had Einstein backed Velikovsky you know, if he hadn't died? Well, that's a good question. Um, yes, I've been told that story is, is uh, true, um, that um, Einstein was backing the uh, test of radio noises from Jupiter because that was unexpected, and yet that was found to be the case, that Jupiter's the, the noisiest radio object in the sky apart from the sun. Uh, this was unexpected because this was supposed to be just a, a gas giant floating around in space, uh, minding its own business and not transmitting uh, in the radio um, wavelengths. So uh, if Einstein, if that experiment had gone ahead, I'm not sure that that would have been accepted because it seems that when you uh, make a really big challenge to science, the problem is that no evidence is sufficient to sway those who um, stand to lose credibility and even um, their status uh, in the hierarchy uh, by accepting uh, this data. Uh, this has happened time and time again. I've seen it. Uh, there is no um, uh, you know, investigative journalism in science, so scientists are more or less uh, a law unto themselves. Uh, they're unaccountable. Um, as much as any church. In fact, Halton Arp said that um, there are many similarities between the medieval church and modern institutionalized science. And this is a very sad state of affairs. Uh, institutionalized science is, is designed to fail because real breakthroughs always come from individuals and individuals are crushed uh, in the present scientific... Uh, or the individuals are making really big challenges, uh, get no hearing. Okay. Um, now, you, someone might say, well, the standard model is, is so confirmed by, by modern science, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? They, they no. often make, they make predictions and then have to change or add more mathematics and stuff to make those predictions work. Yeah. The models are infinitely adjustable. We've got so many knobs to twiddle, you can match uh, anything. I remember there was a cartoon once... Uh, <laughs> um, where uh, it was suggested that uh, if you twiddled a knob, changed one uh, uh, variable, then you could produce a koala bear. <laughs> 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 and it is uh, almost like that now. And I think the fundamental problem is that we don't learn from history. In fact, I think the way science is taught has to change. 
uh, we need to have more history and philosophy and not the sanitized uh, history that we're given uh, to students these days, but the real debates that went on when big decisions were made, usually by a show of hands, and of course science shouldn't be uh, decided on a show of hands, it should be decided on the evidence, but many of the big decisions have been made uh, almost uh, on the basis of show business rather than uh, any uh, real uh, strong evidence. Uh, we were talking about Einstein actually and, and uh, before, and I don't think we, we've quite finished that one. Um, I don't think uh, Einstein was ready to uh, discard his, his work, although he had been sidelined by his peers because he had, you know, for most of his life, I mean, he produced uh, some things early on which were um, given a, a showbiz welcome after the, uh, the Great Wars, as they were called. And I think it was a case at that time, uh, people were looking for an escape from reality. Uh, and we did it both in the arts and the sciences. You know, we had surrealism. Uh, Salvador Dali was inspired by Einstein and painted his uh, melting watches and strange landscapes. And uh, it's, um, you know, I would argue that uh, both uh, quantum theory and relativity uh, were born out of this escape from realism because uh, Bohr, Niels Bohr, uh, wasn't interested in explaining uh, quantum theory uh, just to, to get equations that work. Uh, and this is still the state, state of uh, quantum theory. It's like a recipe book with no understanding of why the recipe works. Uh, in Einstein's case, uh, he tried to explain gravity in a way which, um, which cannot work. I mean, uh, it doesn't explain uh, what warp space is. Uh, space isn't a thing, it's just a concept, so you can't warp a concept. And uh, also, you could say that his idea of relativity itself was a case of making something which is apparent to the observer uh, and, and saying that's actually real. It's like watching somebody disappearing in the distance uh, on the back of a train or a ship or something. And as they disappear in the distance, they shrink in size. And if we could hear their watch ticking, it would appear to tick more slowly uh, just by the Doppler effect. Uh, what Einstein did in effect was to say those things were real uh, when we know they're not. And of course, as soon as he did that, it meant that uh, we departed from real physics and, uh, and any chance of understanding gravity or quantum mechanics. It's, it's funny. Just by doing that, he prevented quantum theory from having an explanation because that re requires instantaneous communication between separated matter uh, as seen in these so-called spooky action at a distance experiments and this crazy word non-locality. Uh, all it means is instantaneous action at a distance. And Newton's law, of course, which as I said earlier, is an instantaneous action at a distance theory which Newton had the sense to say he didn't understand, but Einstein um, lost the plot and um, uh, thought he'd explained it. Now, now when it comes to relativity, mm -hmm. um, ha haven't they done experiments where they've shown that like clocks flying around the, the Earth or come up at different times and the ones sitting stable on the Earth? Mm -hmm. Yes, they're talking about clocks, not time. You've got to make the distinction very carefully. Because okay. uh, it's been found that uh, subatomic effects on the Earth can be traced to uh, activity on the sun, instantaneous activity on the sun, or the position of the sun with respect to the Earth or the moon. All of these things uh, have been shown experimentally. So subatomic 
particles are subject to their location in space relative to everything else. So if you put a clock up in space um, above the Earth, then you have to adjust its uh, rate of ticking, or at least uh, allow for a change in its rate of ticking in the gravitational field. It's simply because uh, the matter in the clock is uh, now at a different distance from the matter in the Earth. But it has nothing to do with time. In the electric universe, there is a universal clock, if you like. There is universal time. And you cannot mess with it. You can't Hmm. slow it down, speed it up. You can't uh, time travel, which is unfortunate for the science fiction fans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when you think about it, so the, even the idea of an arrow of time is nonsense. The mathematicians often confuse the symbols with uh, something that they make up. And that's the case with the arrow of time, because somebody once said, okay, if time has a direction, point me in the direction of time. You can't do it, because time is merely a concept of the intervals between two of, you know, separate events. And Einstein confused the issue by saying that uh, the speed of light was the uh, maximum speed with which he could tell whether an event was uh, coincident uh, in time between two separated uh, incidents. And once he did that, of course, uh, this messed things up more than somewhat. So one of the things that comes out of the electric universe is that you realize that uh, when matter is connected in real time, you know, obviously it can't be an infinite speed because infinite means nothing. Uh, it means that on our scale, maybe within this entire galaxy, you can uh, expect that all of the matter is in touch with all of the other matter. And when you think about it, you couldn't actually form a spiral galaxy if the stars on one side had to wait 100,000 years before they knew where the stars on the other side were. Mm. You could not maintain a beautiful spiral galaxy, the most common form of um, uh, uh, what I would call a galactic electric discharge in the universe. Okay, the um, the theory of dark matter and dark energy is one of the things that they have created in order to explain how galaxies hold together. Mm-hmm. But the electric universe theory explains that much in a much neater, simpler way, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, there's uh, a number of um, beliefs which have to be uh, stifled. And I understand uh, the difficulties in that because uh, when I came across these stumbling blocks, some of them took me a decade to uh, let go of you know, these beliefs about how, uh, what's, what's real and what's not in science. The thing is that if you use uh, the uh, Newton's law of gravity and you look at the, uh, the orbits of stars around the centre of a galaxy, you find that uh, it revolves more like a, a solid disk than it does um, the, the planets in our solar system, where the inner planets rotate around the sun at a rapid rate. They have very short years, and the ones in the outer solar system, uh, you know, have years measured in uh, decades on Earth. You'd expect the same would happen in the galaxies, but it doesn't. So it was decided that you could fix this uh, and maintain Newton's law provided you put a whole lot of mass, invisible mass, somewhere surrounding the galaxy in just the right places. But this is a completely ad hoc arrangement just to save your um, theory. That is, that Newton's law applies in uh, galaxies. However, the plasma cosmologists have, uh, both experimentally and uh, also in uh, supercomputer simulations, 
shown that the spiral shape of a galaxy and its rotation, even the fine detail in the rotation, uh, is matched by an electromagnetic um, system where you have electric currents flowing along the arms of the spiral galaxy in towards the nucleus. And that, of course, also explains the, um, the super concentration of uh, energy and mass at the center of the galaxy. Uh, so that doesn't require the invention of any mysterious dark matter. As for dark energy, this is a case where uh, the expectations of the expanding universe weren't being met, and it appeared to be an accelerating expansion. So then some kind of anti-gravity had to be invented, which could speed up the, uh, the process. But that was all based on uh, the standard candles they call uh, supernovae. Supernovae are, are supposed to explode in a predictable way, and you can measure their light output and the curve of the light uh, to give you the um, the distance uh, when you know the brightness of the supernova. And they found that uh, the dis more distant supernova seemed to be fainter than expected, which they interpreted as being uh, further away than expected, and that meant that their theories of expansion had to be uh, uh, reinvestigated and rejigged. And, as I said before, the problem with science today is that you're rewarded for inventing new forces and new particles instead of being asked to simplify, reduce the number of particles and forces. So uh, this is what happened. But, of course, no one understands a supernova explosion. No one has been able to re uh, reproduce it um, theoretically. And the explanation that's given for a supernova explosion that just doesn't work. But uh, I published a paper in a peer-reviewed uh, journal uh, quite a few years ago now and showing that it is simply another case where the electrical energy being fed into a galaxy also feeds the stars. And a supernova is like throwing a circuit breaker on one of those um, huge uh, intercontinental transmission power lines. And you, you've probably seen the videos where if you throw the switch at the wrong time, this huge arc of electricity uh, follows the switch all the way up and, and then uh, you know, extends out into the atmosphere for some meters. Uh, if it's been shown in plasma physics that um, you can form what's called a double layer, which can act as a switch. It can actually switch the current off, and if it does that suddenly, it's just like the uh, intercontinental power transmission line. All of the energy in that circuit is concentrated on that switch. And if there's a hapless star at the uh, you know, where the switch is, which is normal, <laughs> that star cops all of the energy in its galactic circuit in a very short uh, interval of time. And, of course, the star uh, goes berserk. But uh, so the electric universe has an explanation. It also says that the supernovae are fainter in high redshifted uh, objects, galaxies, simply because high redshifted objects are uh, young, they are less energetic, and therefore supernovae are less energetic. There's no necessity to postulate the universe is expanding at a faster rate and needs dark energy. So all of these things become very simple. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things that impressed me so much is that it was so simple and it made so much sense. Mm. Let's bring things a little closer to home. Let's let's get into um, plasma discharges that, that uh, may have been seen here on Earth um, and mythologies and stuff like that and the work of Anthony Parrott as well, if you don't mind. Yes. Now, Anthony has shown that a lot of the 
something like 80 different forms of ancient art are actually symbols of plasma discharge. And Robert Schock, too, has, has pointed out that the Easter Island glyphs uh, seem to be plasma discharges. And wh what does this mean? Why, why are all these plasma discharges showing up in ancient cultures? Well, I think it's uh, significant that uh, to actually chisel in rock these, uh, these petroglyphs, as they're called, is a considerable uh, amount of work. It's not something you would do just to, uh, like doodling. And the very fact that uh, Tony was able to find um, a, all of the, when I say all, there's about 84 different uh, forms of a plasma discharge. It goes through a series of stages, and they take quite striking forms. And one of the most striking uh, and perhaps long-lived was what's called the squatter man, where you have the central discharge and then you have uh, what's uh, called a, um, a plasma disc comes out from the central discharge and then curls upwards. And uh, there's one uh, further along the axis which curls downwards. And there's one in the center which is, remains flat. Now, when looked at side on, plasma tends to be uh, transparent except where the energy is very high. So anyone looking at it side on would see what looked like a squatter man, somebody with their arms, uh, their elbows out at, uh, from their body and their arms raised up at right angles and their legs out at right angles also. But between their elbows and their knees on each side is this bright ring or dot. And you find this all around the world. And it is a classic form of a plasma discharge seen side on. But apart from that, uh, Tony said that um, most of the other forms are also to be seen, except for a few which are related to a time when the plasma discharge is actually emitting lethal X-rays. So any, anyone standing out in the open chiseling in, on the rock would have been um, killed by the radiation. Right. And so he then found that uh, these petroglyphs, he could actually predict where they would be found on a rock wall because he said that they were looking at a part of the sky that was shielded by something uh, on the horizon uh, from the lethal x-rays. And also the x-rays, he said, tend to travel down canyons and that uh, like a river. So you'd have to find a spot on the canyon wall where it was safe. But I think it also um, shows that whatever was happening, the ancient peoples who were, we have no reason to believe they weren't as intelligent as we are, it was just that they were dealing with a situation that we would find absolutely horrific, uh, you know, the equivalent of doomsday. And they wanted to chisel their experiences for future generations if there were to be any. And uh, this answers all kinds of questions because uh, it's known that civilization sprang up seemingly from nowhere. And it was after this event, they all looked back upon these events in the past. They were a memory. And they memorialized uh, what was seen in the sky and in their architecture and their city layouts, that kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'm able to walk into a museum and look at uh, ancient um, uh, figurines and carvings and, uh, and pictures and so on taken from um, uh, cave walls and that. And I can see what they're trying to tell me. And I think this is of profound importance. We have to pay particular attention to what the uh, most ancient uh, races on Earth still have to tell us, like um, the North American Indians and their myths, uh, creation myths, the Australian Aborigines and their creation myths about the rainbow serpent that uh, changed the landscape. 
all of these uh, things right around the world. And this is what Velikovsky uh, began to do. And other scholars who picked up on it have been continuing to do. And they're members of the, uh, the Thunderbolts.info group, of course. Okay. And um, David Talbot has done a lot of work lining up the mythology as well with, with what may have actually happened in the past. That's right. Yes. Uh, he and Dwight Cardona and uh, F. Cochran in particular have done um, amazing uh, scholarship to uh, try and piece together what the ancients were desperate to, to have us understand and which we've uh, studiously misinterpreted <laughs> for thousands of years. <laughs> but uh, the picture that is painted is one which is just amazing. Um, it gives you a whole new uh, feeling for what our forefathers, our ancient uh, forebears went through and why they did the things they did, uh, what motivated them to build pyramids that we couldn't even build today, and uh, did this all around the world, uh, and obelisks and so on. Um, it, it throws our history into a completely different light. It's not the kind of once upon a time fairy tale that uh, we're taught. Uh, you begin to understand what all these strange uh, anthropomorphic uh, gods and things were that were worshipped around the world, and why there was this feeling that. Uh, you know, the gods uh, lived and fought uh, and capriciously in the heavens. Uh, that's exactly where they were. And uh, what these uh, thunderbolts of the gods were, when you look at the carvings um, or the sculptures of Zeus and his thunderbolt, it's nothing like a modern lightning bolt, which looks like a spark. Uh, Zeus's thunderbolt has the form of a, um, a, a plasmoid, which is the form that you would expect a discharge to take place in space. So these are the kinds of things which give you pretty solid evidence that we have to take this work, this uh, uh, mytho-historical record, as it's called, seriously, if we're to understand uh, our forebears, our, our real history, and our past. Because Velikovsky, in his, uh, I think his final work, Mankind in Amnesia, felt that Unless we understand our past, we will continue as a race to behave irrationally. And I mean, you've only got to look around for a moment to see just how <laughs> irrational we are. Uh, the doomsday fear is unexplained unless you understand our real past. Our uh, separateness, our desire to set up uh, them and us, you know, at odds with each yeah. other, and then to have this cathartic, uh, visitation of doomsday on each other by trying to destroy one or the other of us in, in our crazy wars. All of this stuff, you be, when you understand it, uh, Velikovsky felt that unless we understand it, we may not have a future on this planet. And I tend to agree with him. We have to uh, understand our past, come to terms with it, and grow up. <laughs> well said. Um, now, part of the reason we didn't recognize what these symbols these petroglyphs were is because until they were produced in the lab, we had never seen anything like it in modern times. That's right. Yeah, Tony said uh, when he came to our meetings and uh, and began to realize what he uh, what he'd found, uh, said that he went hunting around Los Alamos and he walked past the uh, uh, North American Indian uh, petroglyphs and that without <laughs> without even realizing he hadn't stopped to think you know, that there'd be any connection between them and the work he'd done in his laboratory, and yet he was the expert, the world expert, on these uh, plasma instabilities, as they're called. Hmm. Um, let, let, let's uh, look at, actually, Robert Schock's theory mm -hmm. um, that the sun had 
released such an outburst that it caused these plasma formations on Earth and ended the last ice age. Is that something that is realistic under the electric universe theory? It's one of the things that has to be considered uh, because the uh, the discharges, of course, occur along the magnetic field line. So you'll tend to see uh, stupendous auroras if uh, if there's any electrical disturbance close to the Earth. And uh, and Tony Pratt actually used that uh, in his um, peer-reviewed papers uh, discussing this uh, discovery. Uh, but the the mytho-historical record, if you can call it that. Uh, shows that that wasn't the case. It wasn't the sun at all that was involved, that it had something to do with uh, a chaotic stage in the solar system where certain planets uh, uh, were very close to the Earth in an, in an alignment which is uh, completely at odds with uh, Newtonian physics, but which does, I believe, have an explanation when you understand the electrical nature of gravity. Uh, and that that is one of the aspects of the electric universe. All forces um, uh, collapse down to be uh, explained simply as an electric force, uh, which simplifies physics enormously and gives uh, new understanding to quantum mechanics and to uh, the mechanics of the uh, universe itself. Okay. When when we look at Mars, mm -hmm. um, you guys have done some fantastic videos showing that you can recreate in the lab exactly the type of scarring we see on the surface of Mars. Yes, that's right. Uh, in fact, this is one of the big tests, uh, is to be able to um, reproduce in the laboratory uh, the scarring that you see on planets and moons, uh, because these uh, thunderbolts of Jupiter, if you like to call them that, although it wasn't Jupiter that was necessarily involved, um, uh, are able to sculpt the surface of a planet uh, in a very short period of time, measured in minutes and hours. Uh, that's why you can have uh, some objects in the solar system with completely different scarring patterns on one face than the other. Our own moon is an example. Um, but in Mars' case, it has one of the biggest uh, gashes across its face. Uh, in the solar system, uh, the Valles Marineris is a colossal scar which stretches a third of the way around the planet and uh, is up to nine kilometers deep. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Um, but uh, the ancients actually described, uh, have a stories about Mars receiving that scar. Now, no astronomer on Earth uh, <laughs> imagines that Mars has a history which can be um, recounted uh, in terms of a few thousand years ago, and also something as uh, colossal as that scar on uh, the face of Mars. Uh, but when you look at it from the electrical point of view, it just becomes obvious. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, the nice things about the electric universe is that it returns science to individuals who want to try things out in their garage or laboratory. And we, we have a number of garage experimenters who are producing uh, the, uh, detailed reproductions of, um, in miniature of uh, the things we see on the surface of Mars and uh, other bodies. Okay, what, what do you think caused, what planet do you think caused the scarring? Uh, well, Mars uh, was said to have been, um, uh, had a battle with Venus, the comet Venus, and I think that was uh, the most likely um, uh, where, where the thunderbolt came from. Venus itself has uh, scars which stretch around the equator, but they're more filamentary, and that's the kind of thing that happens when you have a thick atmosphere. The lightning becomes not um, 
the plasma form that you see uh, in space, but it becomes the lightning form you see in the Earth's atmosphere, you know, thin filamentary uh, lightning bolts. And that's what you see on uh, Venus, uh, scar stretching around the uh, equator. So um, Venus was certainly involved. Um, the Earth was involved too because Mars uh, traveled uh, between Venus and the Earth. Um, at times it was regarded as a giant in the sky, the god of war, and at other times it was a baby returning to the womb of the, the mother goddess, Venus. Um, the stories like this tell us uh, all sorts of details about what went on, and, and you, you can re reconstruct uh, an incredible amount of what actually happened. But Mars was uh, transferred um, uh, both matter and electricity between Venus and the Earth. Uh, and the very fact that uh, meteorites from Mars are still landing on the Earth today is significant because uh, these thunderbolts just rip material from the face of a planet and hurl it into space. Some of it may be trapped as a moon, and Mars has two small moons. Uh, others become uh, asteroids, uh, cometary material, and uh, meteorite or meteors, which then become meteorites when they enter the Earth's atmosphere. Now, do you think that the asteroid belt came about because of this collision? Yes. Uh, the astronomer Tom Van Flanden pointed out that the uh, orbits of uh, the asteroids and uh, comets as well suggests uh, some event that occurred uh, in the asteroid belt region. And he thought it was uh, a single event, or it may have been maybe uh, one, uh, two events, something like that. But the result is that um, it stripped whatever it was. He thought it was the collision uh, or the explosion of a planet. But he never explained how you explode a planet. The Electric Universe doesn't need to uh, postulate that. It has eyewitnesses which describe what happened to Mars. And it is obvious that it had material ripped off its surface, some of it kilometres deep. Uh, so that a lot of the debris out there is um, material excavated from Mars. And it should be very easy to test this once we um, uh, begin landing on asteroids and taking samples and so on. And then the real history of the solar system will begin to be um, uncovered. Well, do you, do you think it really will, or do you think they'll come up with alternative explanations? <laughs> Well, I think eventually I have uh, confidence that the truth will, will come out. And, I mean, when you uh, stretch your um, theories with ad hoc additions and more and more barnacles, eventually the whole thing uh, sinks, <laughs> can no longer float. <laughs> um, and I think that will happen. Also, I think people will begin to get sick of the science fiction type uh, headlines and promises and that from science. Uh, it could be said that uh, fundamental science hasn't ex hasn't progressed anywhere in the last century. You know, technology has progressed amazingly, but it can work without actually understanding things. It it just needs proof in the laboratory that you can something can happen, and then you can uh, utilize that uh, in industry perhaps or uh, some kind of uh, uh, new device. And this happens in quantum uh, mechanics, of course, because our electronics relies on quantum theory. But quantum theory has no explanation. So technology advances even with um, um, the fundamentals of science doesn't. And this is why we can put spaceships in orbit and stuff because the 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 uh, formulas work yeah. even if we don't understand why they work. Yes, yes, we use Newton's law for uh, navigating around the solar system, but uh, we no one understands it any more than Newton did. Hmm. So uh, Velikovsky, uh, idea that Venus was the one that. Uh, uh, slammed into Mars and did all the damage and stuff, do you think that's probably correct? 
Uh, well, yes, to a point, except that the planets don't slam into one another. When they get close enough, the thunderbolts themselves exchange energy, which then uh, changes the mass of the uh, planets, so their orbits are gradually uh, move into situations where they interact with each other the least. There is no explanation for why the solar system uh, runs like clockwork because Newton's theory suggests that the whole thing should be chaotic, but it's not. And also, Venus has the most circular orbit of any planet in the solar system after having been, according to our ancient forebears, a giant comet. The answer is simply that a comet is exchanging electric charge with the uh, solar wind at a huge rate, and that's why uh, you can't predict the return of a comet because it has these so-called non-gravitational forces. Well, Venus uh, is the most circular orbit because it, it's still discharging, uh, mm. but invisibly. But in the old days, it must have been a phenomenal sight. I, I was pretty impressed with Laird Scranton's book on Velikovsky where he took modern science and showed that none of it disproved Velikovsky, but a lot of it supported him. That's true. Yes, in fact, uh, Velikovsky didn't depart from the scientific method at all. What he did was he said, uh, if we look at what the ancients were trying to tell us, we can, with our modern knowledge, figure out what that meant physically on Earth. And he did that and showed that uh, it made sense which indicated that the stories were not simply myths uh, or legends or um, you know, something that we could ignore. Uh, we had to take them into account and uh, find explanations. And that was the start of, um, for me, in fact, when I visited him at his home just before he died, my question was, what don't we understand about gravity? And it was he who um, put me onto the idea of um, uh, polarized matter, electrically polarized matter. And uh, that sort of led on over many decades uh, to where we are now with the, uh, the electric universe model. Now, if there, had, if there had been life on Mars back in ancient times, yes. would there even be any remnants of it after an uh, interaction with Venus? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, but I think since kilometers of um, material has been removed, uh, particularly from the north, northern uh, hemisphere, uh, you won't find anything there. Uh, and I try and imagine what it would be like if the Earth had suffered the same fate and whether we'd actually find any trace of our civilizations. And uh, I think it would be very difficult. Uh, you'd have to be extremely lucky. Hmm. Well, um, how close did other planets come to the Earth, do you think? Uh, David Talbot estimated from his work that uh, Mars at one point was uh, 40 times the diameter of the full moon. Oh. which would be uh, oppressive, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the time frame in the past we're looking at for this? Well, uh, we, this is where we depart from Velikovsky, who brought it down into um, historical times, you know, 1500 BC and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at the end of the last ice age, which uh, was okay. variously dated around ten to 12,000 years ago. But there may have been, I mean, uh, after those major events, there would have been a lot of settling down afterwards, and there must have been some, some colossal, spectacular comets um, and, uh, and, and things like that, debris flying around, which must have um, scared our, uh, our ancestors, even down into historical times. So there were echoes, I think, because every time these things happened, we still have that fear of comets. It's quite irrational because no one's ever witnessed anything happen as a result of the comet. And, right. and the comets don't put on that greater display these days. 
but uh, it, it's a hangover from our past. Uh, one of the, it's kind of a racial memory, uh, like a bird freezing at the uh, the shadow of a hawk overhead. Um, we we tend to freeze at the sight of a comet. So, so what was the configuration of the solar system? Do you think before the end of the last ice age? <laughs> we wouldn't if we were uh, transported back to before that time. We would not know where we were. We it, it would have we'd have no references like we have today. Hmm. It'll be that different. So, like, would we would we have the same planets? No. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the things about the electrical model of gravity is that uh, capture of uh, planets and moons is far more likely because you get hmm. uh, electrical transfer of uh, between the objects and that uh, modifies the orbits in such a way that capture is likely. And it seems that uh, all of our gas giants in the outer solar system are captured uh, yeah. because when we look at exoplanets around nearby stars, they have what are called hot Jupiters, uh, these planets that are orbiting very rapidly around uh, a central star, and they're very close to the central star. Those ones, I think, uh, are probably due to electrical fissioning, uh, so that you get um, multiple star systems of close orbiting bodies. Uh, gas giants that are some distance away from the central star are the remnants of brown dwarfs, which were captured by the sun. Because a star is an electrical phenomenon, that's one of the other big hurdles that um, astrophysicists are going to have to face with our work is that um, it seems that the power, the lightning bolts that form stars also continue to power them invisibly uh, with these Birkeland currents uh, throughout their lives. And so if a, a faint star, a small star, comes close to a bright star, the bright star captures it and it switches off the small star because its power is no longer available. And it, astronomers know that there is what's called a brown dwarf desert around bright stars. And the simple answer is that uh, they're switched off when they come in and they become a gas giant. So all of the uh, outer solar system giants uh, were captured and in the process they lost some of their moons which uh, became the planets in the inner solar system. And... Uh, so, so everybody in the solar system has a unique story to tell. And some of them are family members and others are not. So there's a complicated uh, story to untangle for future, future uh, astronomers and uh, those who visit the planets. Okay. Um, I've been wanting to ask you this one. Are you familiar with Walter Cruttenton? I've heard the name, but I can't remember what he was responsible for. Okay, he's... Uh, he has a book called The Lost Star of Space, or Lost Star of Myth and Time, or something like that. And uh, he's uh, pushing the binary star system, that we're in a binary star system. And one of the mm. possibilities he suggests is that we're in a binary star system with Sirius. Now, would an electrical explanation connect us to, to Sirius? Because like, the, the argument is always that gravity isn't strong enough to hold Sirius and our sun yes. together. They're too far away. Yes. Wouldn't a it would. Yes, that's right. It's uh, it, uh, Sirius is not uh, a binary with us. It has its own partner, Sirius A and Sirius B. Uh, it's got nothing to do with us. Um, the idea that there is a out there, there's a dark star uh, ready to come in and create havoc is another uh, manifestation of this doomsday fear. You know, something out there ready to get us. Uh, we would have discovered by now, I think, if there was a brown dwarf of any significance uh, close to the solar system, 
because we've got these wonderful infrared telescopes in space, uh, which have been able to detect very faint uh, glowing objects uh, at great, much greater distances than uh, a binary partner for the sun uh, would be expected to be found. So I don't think there is a uh, binary partner out there. However, the story of the Earth is, uh, and its involvement in capture with a brown dwarf suggests that these encounters and the fact that we have more than one gas giant in our solar system suggests that these encounters uh, do happen um, and can happen again. But um, let me tell you, if it does happen, we will have plenty of uh, forewarning. <laughs> because, one, <Right. laughs> because one of the things that the captured brown dwarf does, it, it turns into a phenomenal stellar-sized comet. <laughs> now... When you, when you talk about Brooklyn currents uh, powering the stars, are these almost like invisible strings running through space? Yes, they become visible uh, in uh, molecular clouds, and this is one area where the infrared telescopes have been valuable because they've been able to pierce through the dust and the gloom and show that what you have in molecular clouds is like you have clouds on Earth, and that is lightning bolts. And the stars form along those lightning bolts like beads on a string. It was uh, said in one of the astronomy articles. Of course, they're like beads on a string. Uh, it's almost a form of bead lightning. And the plasma cosmologists have described how stars are formed in those circumstances. And uh, the important thing to note is that uh, it preferentially puts all of the heavy elements at the center of the star. And it, the center of the star is the coolest material in the star. So there is no nuclear fusion going on in stars. So when you look through a sunspot and it's dark, it's because there's nothing going on underneath. I mean, this simple fact should have been uh, <laughs> uh, should have been obvious uh, when we first looked at the sun. Because if the energy is trying to escape from the sun and you have a hole in the photosphere, you're expected to be blindingly bright instead of dark. So um, this is another hurdle for astrophysicists in the near future. Okay. Um you also had an explanation for the odd storm on Saturn's pole. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, as I said earlier, the electric currents that flow to a planet, uh, because a star is connected to a galactic circuit, uh, the planets that uh, orbit it are also kind of um, involved in that circuit, so they get some of the power. Uh, in the case of the gas giants, they get considerable power, and it flows in along the magnetic field lines to the poles. Uh, now, there's very strange things going on uh, have been discovered at uh, Saturn's pole. One is a hexagon and another is uh, a, a cyclonic um, circulation uh, at the pole itself. And also the fact that the pole was found to be warm, although it had been in darkness for 14 years. I predicted that would be the case uh, because this is where energy is being fed down into the, uh, the uh, atmosphere of the planet. And... Um, the uh, hexagonal pattern is one which uh, forms when you get particle beams um, in, uh, in the laboratory. Uh, it tends to form uh, uh, filaments, if you like. Uh, instead of being a single beam, it, it breaks up and forms a number of beams, and thus it can be four or six. And uh, particle, six particle beams will form a hexagonal shape in the, um, in the atmosphere of Saturn. Hmm. Okay. Do uh, you think there's any chance that there's like a black project out there that's using these theories that we would never hear about? I have no idea. 
uh, <laughs> it depends on the extent to which uh, some scientists are willing to let go of what they believe and, and try things which are so-called on the fringe. Uh, in our case, uh, I, I could see people um, reading, because I, I'm free with this stuff, I put it up on my website, holoscience.com, um, it could take this and run with it. And I've often felt that uh, some small nation that has no attachment to the myths and legends of Western science uh, could see the opportunities because there are a lot of opportunities that open up uh, in the uh, realm of um, energy supplies, uh, low-energy nuclear fusion, uh, anti-gravity, um, all this kind of stuff uh, can be investigated uh, scientifically once you have a model uh, to, um, to uh, work on. You know, once you've got a model of how things work, you can then uh, uh, devise experiments and think up ways and means of utilizing it technologically. And it just occurred to me because, you know, I, I, obviously the U.S. government has done work with remote viewing and things like that. Yes. But they say don't work, so why not take a, a theory <laughs> like yours? And they would, didn't have to tell anyone they're using it. <laughs> well, you begin to realize that, uh, as I said earlier, <clears throat> the fundamental idea in the electric universe that all matter in the universe is connected, <clears throat> and it's uh, connected electrically by the electric force and uh, matter which operates at the same, <clears throat> pardon me, operates uh, internally at the same uh, subatomic frequencies, uh, actually can communicate instantly. So you don't have this speed of light delay and it raises the possibility of um, uh, interstellar communication in real time. It also, uh, you can understand uh, how uh, ESP can work and also work in a Faraday cage because it's just like gravity, you can't shield from it. Um, the gravitational force is one aspect where the planets know where the stars are instantly. So in, in effect, ESP is like um, uh, one person's mind being able to uh, investigate something at a distance because uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's connected in a sense. It also explains why quantum uh, experiments are so weird it's because the observer is not separate from the experiment. They're all, they're all connected. So all the spookiness and weirdness of quantum uh, uh, theory goes out the window and becomes understandable. Once you have an understanding, then uh, the, the future of science is pretty rosy because all kinds of possibilities open up. And in fact, it's a bit like Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology, which would have to be built on an advanced science, uh, is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. All right. So if people want to find out more about your work, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, well, my website is called holoscience, H-O-L-O science.com. And the reason for that is that it's a kind of uh, holistic approach to science. It's a, a coherent big picture. The uh, website, which uh, deals with the public far more, is our thunderbolts.info website. And from there, you can find out about our conferences and uh, you can get involved uh, in discussions with others and, uh, and also you can get involved to any level you like. We have a lot of volunteers now who do sterling work in uh, allowing us to present our material. And you also publish a good deal of videos. Yes, that's the other thing. Our conferences, uh, we're getting more and more uh, scholars um, uh, coming along uh, and finding that their work 
dovetails with ours and the their presentations are put up as uh, YouTube videos following our conferences. Okay. I, you, I, you have... I also have the Space News, which I do regularly, uh, where I give my, my take on uh, recent discoveries. Okay, and uh, you also have uh, some DVDs out? Yes, yes. Um, and they can be also uh, found on that uh, thunderbolts.info website. And, and how many books do you have? Well, the two major ones at present are The Electric Universe. Uh, Dave Talbot and I co-author our books. Um, his uh, work is more on the uh, mytho-historical record and mine is on the scientific. And the, the first book we put out, uh, Thunderbolts of the Gods, uh, deals with the, the record of uh, the ancients and piecing that together in terms of the astronomy and also the plasma effects. Uh, the Electric Universe talks about the electrical nature of the universe. I have plans to put out a, um, another book, um, which I'm working on at present, which will give a kind of simple big picture story of the Earth and uh, the Electric Universe. When do you think that might be available? <laughs> Difficult to say. It depends on uh, how many requests I get to uh, either speak at conferences or um, or do other things. <laughs> Okay, and uh, do you have any conferences coming up? Uh, our big annual one was in March, uh, so there right. are YouTube videos going up right now about that one. Uh, my next uh, conference is the Nexus Conference here in Australia at the Sunshine Coast uh, in August, first week of August, and that can be found uh, also by a Google search. Okay, all right. Well, I thank you so much, Walls. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you, and uh, I hope people check out your stuff and uh, there's so much detail on your sites that people who have further questions and want to delve into it deeper you make it very easy for them to do it mm -hmm. thank you alright so as I said we're going to be talking here with Wallace Thornhill hello Wallace how are you doing I'm fine thank you and uh, you are still in Australia right Yes, for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and next uh, is it ne yeah it's next month now you have a conference in Arizona that's correct 25th to 29th of June, and, that, and uh, it's at Phoenix. Okay, and that is the Electric Universe. This is the big conference you do every year, right? Yeah, the Thunderbolts conference, uh, which is based around the Electric Universe. Okay, and uh, how many years have you been doing it? Uh, let me think. I think this is the fourth year. Oh, is that it? Seems like yeah, you've been doing uh, them longer than that. Oh, yeah, prior to that, we had a lot of uh, meetings um, which were sort of ad hoc. But uh, these, having one every year, gives people an expectation of being able to uh, uh, meet up and chat at least once a year. Hmm. And well, who do you have at this one? Well, we've got quite a lineup. Uh, apart from uh, Don Scott, uh, who's the uh, Professor of Electrical Engineering, and has been working on the electric sun, electric sky. His book is called The Electric Sky. My uh, colleague that I've worked with since 1997 is David Talbot. And we have uh, Professor Jerry Pollack. We'll be talking about beyond water, what makes the world go round, talking about the fourth state of water and its uh, critical nature for life itself. Montgomery Childs, uh, who's a, an engineer uh, who ran a big engineering company and is now the head of our Sapphire project, which is looking at proving the electrical model of stars. Uh, we've got Ben Davidson from uh, 
Uh, he runs the show Suspicious Observers on suspiciousobservers.org and looks at the electrical uh, nature of earthquakes. Does the sun trigger large earthquakes? Uh, Dr. C.J. Ransom, who's a plasma physicist and uh, who I've known for many years, uh, will be looking at, um, uh, let me see, called Close Encounters of the Star Kind is his uh, first talk and uh, talking about the idea of uniformity being used to support the claim that mythology was only created in the minds of the writers. He'll be showing that that's not true. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Franklin Anariba, who'll be talking about the electrochemistry of comets, since comets are an electrical phenomenon. Uh, Michael Steinbarker, who's interested in plasma catastrophist geology, and that is the formations we see, particularly in the U.S. Southwest, and uh, he talks about them in electrical terms. Uh, Dr. Tom Wilson, who will be talking about the siren song of certainty, uh, which shows the rather odd way that science uh, or human beings behave anyway when doing science, and that is they're attracted to kind of groupthink and the difficulty that we have these days because of the institutionalization of science in breaking free from that and actually introducing really new ideas. Uh, we've got a number of other people. Uh, Dr. Bruce Laybourne will be talking about climate change and the uh, Earth as a stellar transformer. Uh, with Dwight Cardona, who's written the definitive works on the earliest memories of mankind and the history of the solar system. Uh, Dr. A.P. David, talking about the metaphysics of Michael Faraday. And Ignacio Cisneros, who's a very good friend and who's doing amazing work in analysing uh, images from space and looking at the filamentary structures which are indicative of electric currents in space. Uh, Ev Cochran, who's a colleague of uh, Dave Talbot's and uh, has been for decades, looking at planetary catastrophe in terms of ancient myths and modern science. Uh, we have another chap who I haven't met yet, uh, talking about solar system formation. And Pierre, Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille, now he's doing very important work uh, looking at uh, Kirchhoff's claims about um, uh, thermal emission and showing that uh, Kirchhoff's you know, laws are actually mistaken. And not only that, that uh, Max Planck's trying to claim that uh, Kirchhoff's laws are universal is incorrect as well. He's working with Stephen Crothers, another Australian, a good friend, uh, who looks at general relativity and <laughs> a case study in numerology and shows that uh, the mathematics behind it is flawed and uh, anyone who's followed it since uh, and claims to understand it, uh, their mathematics also doesn't uh, come up to scratch. <laughs> we have a uh, Reverend Robert Strait, uh, who's a PhD in chemistry in, uh, let me see, in engineering, revisiting our understanding of classical physics and relativity, because this is obviously uh, one of the big themes. We've got uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz looking at extraordinary ideas and extraordinary evidence, and he's done amazing work at um, uh, the University of Arizona. Uh, a couple of other people I haven't met before. Richard Moore's talking about the pulsating universe and planet Earth, looking at electrical um, the spiky nature of electrical current and its implication in terms of cataclysm and ice ages and climate. Uh, Wayne Byrne, I haven't met yet, uh, talking about the, uh, uh, the structure of uh, interplanetary discharges and the effect that has in cratering. 
and showing that impact craters can only have been made by lightning bolts. Uh, we've got another chap talking about plant electrotropism. And this gives you an idea of the broad range. Once you uh, are looking at the underpinnings of science, and cosmology is supposed to be the queen of the sciences, the umbrella under which all of the others fit, once you start uh, producing a new cosmology, then it has effects right across uh, science and uh, also um, culture, you know, cultural activities. So we have artists involved at various times. Michael Armstrong's talking about the culture shock of planetary catastrophe. And then we have David Novak, uh, who's our master of ceremonies and an amazing guy. Uh, he, his ability to uh, weave together the disparate subjects and talks and uh, speakers is uh, quite a, uh, something to behold. He's quite a performer on his own. So it's going to be a great show. It sounds like it. My God. <laughs> that is one hell of a lineup. And how many, days, how many days is it? Uh, well, the 25th to the 29th, so that's four days. Wow. I think. Yeah, actually, uh, the first evening, of course, is uh, open to the public, I think. So anyone who wants to come and have a listen can get some ideas of what's happening over the following four days. Hmm. Okay. And... Uh who puts this, I mean, I know you have a part in putting it together. Is it mostly David Talbot out there kind of putting the details into everything? Oh, we have a great team of volunteers now, and without them, this would not be possible. Um, and uh, in particular, we have uh, somebody managing the, uh, the conference, uh, Susan Sherrod, who's uh, quite an amazing organizer. And we expect to be doing live streaming uh, on the web really? this year for the first time. Uh, we have uh, people involved in that activity who have shown to be shown themselves to be extremely professional. So we're looking forward to this first for the Thunderbolts conferences. Wow. Okay. And that I'm sure people will be able to find more about that at thunderbolts.info. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And that's where you can go for all the info on this conference as well as. Uh you guys put so much stuff into that site. Uh, you have a video of the week that comes out. I mean, there's just so much information that's on a constant stream out of there from so many different people. It's it's utterly fascinating. Yeah, it's so easy because uh, science uh, is reporting surprises almost on a weekly basis. So we've always got um, more material. And a lot of these surprises aren't surprises to you. No, this is the um, the encouraging aspect of the Electric Universe. We're open to new ideas all the time. Um, but these surprises, as they come in, uh, we have a look to see how it fits with the big picture, as we call it. And uh, we haven't had any difficulties at all uh, fitting uh, these surprises to the Electric Universe cosmology, which is, of course, how... Uh, a, uh, a replacement cosmology must operate. It must be able to explain things better than the old one. Right. And uh, as an example of that, do you want to explain a little bit about Comet 67P and uh, what they expected versus what you guys have been saying about comets all along? Yes, well, the back in the, uh, at the turn of the 18th and 19th century, uh, scientists were talking quite openly then about the electrical possibilities of comets. Uh, but that all got squashed um, for some reason or other, and the history of these ideas is always very interesting to trace because you often find where we make the big mistakes. And the big mistake was made when it was decided that electricity 
played no role in cosmology. And that is a quite amazing thing to do because electric, you know, electrical power, we just can't do without it right. in uh, modern science and technology and day to day living. And yet it doesn't play a role in cosmology. And yet the electrical force is so much more powerful than gravity. I mean, gravity is so weak that it's essentially zero compared to electricity and magnetism. And yet here's this almost zero force being given as the uh, driving force in the universe. And this, of course, is why we end up with black holes and, uh, uh, you know, these monstrous things that gobble everything up because gravity is all they've got to work with. All yeah. they have. Uh, so anyway, getting back to comets. Uh, it was recognised early on that the features of a cometary display uh, were similar to those seen in the old gas discharge tubes. You know, this uh, glow that you can get in a, in a low-pressure uh, gas. And, of course, the solar system is an extremely low-pressure gas. The uh, flaring of comets is also an electrical phenomenon that you see on cathodes when uh, they light up. Um, and the jets also, cathode jets, is the kind of thing that they use in industry in spark machining. And uh, this w has been uh, recognised too by people in the industry uh, who've joined us, that uh, all of these features uh, make sense from the point of view of electrical discharge machining. Now, so when we look at the jets on Comet 67P, we are not expecting ICE to be the, um, the responsible for it. In fact, it can occur from high points, sharp points, and so on. And this is what we've observed in the past, that it's the sharp edges of craters and things uh, on a surface which tend to get eroded away. Uh, the other thing about Comet 67P, and this gets down to our complete lack of understanding of gravity, is that its gravity suggests that it's, it's um, a kind of fluff ball. You know, it's not even solid ice. It's... Um, uh, must have a lot of uh, empty space inside, so it's porous. Well, when you look at Comet 67P, it looks like a piece of rock. And my suggestion early on was, if it looks like a piece of rock, then that should be your first assumption, that it is rock. <laughs> but of course, the gravity says, no, it can't be. <laughs> but when you understand the electrical nature of gravity, because gravity is, uh, in effect, in the electric universe model, a very weak... Uh, dipole electrical force that's um, down at the subatomic level. That's why it's so weak. You know, it's the kind of uh, effect from electrons and protons and neutrons, the bits that make up atoms. And uh, a comet is in a very odd environment. It's quite different to the Earth. It's in the sun's environment. There are no large bodies nearby to um, affect its atomic structure. So it has a very weak uh, gravitational field, but that doesn't mean that it's not made up of rock. Um, and also being in the sun's electric field, as it travels rapidly, more and more rapidly towards the sun, its uh, electrical environment is changing. And it, in response to that, it begins to discharge. And that's, of course, is what we see. Okay. And the, the established view of comets is pretty much that they're just dirty balls of ice. That's right. Sublimating gas and the gas is blowing material off into space. But if that was the case, you would not expect to see these very fine collimated jets coming off the surface. Because if you blow a hole in the surface and there's material underneath trying to escape into space, it'll do so, uh, tend to do it in an explosive way. In other words, the, you won't get a fine jet, 
That would only happen if you happened to be machining uh, nozzles for jets uh, on the surface of the comet, and there's nobody there to do that. <laughs> um, so the official explanation of comets, if I'm not mistaken, is that they are left over from the creation of the solar system. They are out in the Oort cloud and occasionally get knocked loose and come into the inner solar system. Yes. Where would you say, com what are in the electric universe theory, what are comets and where do they come from? <laughs> well, the standard story is based on the idea that the, um, the Earth and all the planets and the Sun were formed from a, a rotating disk of gas and dust. That theory has never been shown to work. I was at a meeting of astrophysicists a year or so ago and an expert on uh, solar system formation admitted that you needed a different theory for every planet. Mm. And that's the clue. Uh, in the electric universe, stars and planets large ones uh, are built uh, in effect in a cosmic lightning bolt in a molecular cloud and this is exactly what the infrared telescopes like Herschel has observed and the surprise expressed at the time was that the stars appeared to be like uh, beads on a string on a glowing string now this doesn't fit accretion theory at all but it does fit the uh, plasma cosmology and electric universe model uh, precisely now, under those conditions, uh, you form planetary systems by uh, bodies in that lightning bolt. Uh, after the lightning bolt fades, they then uh, capture one another to form systems with multiple stars and with multiple planets. And uh, the surprise expressed by those who have looked at, by now, more than 2,000 exoplanetary systems is that none of them seem to make any sense according to the standard theory of how the solar system was formed. In fact, we look like the odd one out. Now, this is a sure indication that your theory is failing. But science doesn't operate uh, on failing theories. What they do is they get more and more complicated answers and keep the same theory. Anyway, uh, in the process of capture, bodies have to adjust electrically to their new environment. And in doing so, they often have to eject material because one way of uh, achieving electrical stability is to just get rid of a part of yourself, um, get rid of that charge, which is charged matter. And uh, so comets and asteroids and all the debris floating around in the solar system are the remnants of previous capture events. And the solar system, because all of the gas giants are at a great distance from the sun, must have been captured. Uh, none of them have any relevance to the formation of the sun. They were captured later. That's why it's such a fruit salad of objects in this uh, solar system. And the Electric Universe story, which we'll be talking about at this conference, is what happened in the last episode of capture, because that impacted humankind dramatically. And, and we, still have, yeah, we still haven't recovered from the after effects, psychological after effects of that. Now, is that the, the end of the last Ice Age? Yes. The Ice Age was part of it. In fact, uh, there is no climate theory that explains Ice Ages. Right. Now, do you think there was a, a shift in the poles? What do, you, what, what do you think happened at the end of the... during That started the Ice Age and, and ended it? All of the evidence points to the fact that we were part of the captured bodies in the last, in the last Ice Age was part of that uh, phenomenon. Uh, the story is um, 
it without science fiction, any science fiction story, simply because, as often happens, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. But we have all of the evidence in place now to be able to uh, fairly, uh, well, quite confidently, point to the last phases of that capture episode in which the Earth was involved. And the ancients recorded at that time these uh, thunderbolts of the gods, as they called them, these uh, interplanetary discharges, and that's the origin of the material that's floating around in the solar system now. In fact, that's the very reason why Martian meteorites are still landing on the Earth. Hmm. Okay, so we were captured by the solar system. Yes, yes. Now, now is this the, the Saturn... Uh, hypothesis here? That's right. We call it the proto-Saturn story because uh, Saturn, uh, in its former existence, outside the sun's electrical uh, environment, was a brown dwarf star. Mm. And it's fascinating that in recent years, astronomers have finally come to the conclusion that uh, life would be well suited to uh, begin around uh, as a satellite of a brown dwarf. Okay, and when it got into the sun's environment, it lost some of that charge. Well, in the uh, process of capture, uh, proto-Saturn would have been a, a phenomenal comet of its own. And uh, the discharges involved in that one would have been uh, quite amazing. And this is the kind of thing that's been recorded around the world in petroglyphs. And that was a critical moment in our development of this uh, work was the coming together of high-energy plasma physics and the mythological evidence of these um, interplanetary discharges. I made the initial connection with Dave Talbot back in uh, you know, 1996-97, and that's when we realised that the convergence of the science that I was doing and the uh, reconstruction of the uh, mythological stories, the global mythological stories, uh, was the thunderbolt. It was the electrical interaction. And, of course, um, when that was established, it became obvious to me also that in Australia, the, our Aboriginal uh, people here have legends of the Lightning Brothers and their depictions show things which you'd expect from the high-energy plasma lab experiments to exist but which they could not have known about. The very fact they describe these things uh, is... Uh, very strong forensic evidence in favour of the work that we're doing. Hmm. Can, can you give us sort of a, uh, an overview of what would have happened? <laughs> uh, yes, um, provided you don't, you know, disbelief doesn't cut in and you just listen. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that's fine. Okay, we were a part of a, a brown dwarf stellar system which, and uh, Saturn, or proto-Saturn, which would have been a larger body than it is now was um, our sun, if you like. Now, if you could imagine uh, Saturn or Jupiter today, and if their magnetosphere was lit up, uh, you would see something, for instance, with Jupiter, if its magnetosphere lit up uh, when we were close, closest on the same side of the solar system as Jupiter, uh, we would see Jupiter as big as the full moon. Now, that is the extent of its electrical environment. Now, a brown dwarf has a very large electrical environment, much larger than the central body, just like the sun has its electrical environment. It extends out 100 times the distance of the Earth from the sun to the heliosphere. Right. 
but in the case of uh, brown dwarfs, the uh, this electrical environment is lit up as a glow discharge, so it glows red. So brown dwarfs, uh, although they're small stars, actually their glow is is uh, much larger than the star itself. And if you can imagine, if you're on any of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, you would be inside that red glow. And it's known that if you are inside a, a glowing shell, it doesn't matter where you are inside that shell, you will receive the same amount of energy on your surface, uh, regardless of where you are, how you're moving, and so on. So the Earth at that time had a, a very benign environment for life, and there was no um, latitudinal difference. Uh, in other words, the poles were as warm as the equator. There was no night and day because the light was switched on all the time, if you like. We're inside the light. And uh, so there was no uh, such thing as night or day. It, it's interesting to try and speculate on, on how that must have been. But the light was remembered as dim and it was purplish because you get both the red end of the spectrum and the blue and ultraviolet in those electrical um, systems. So it was the purple dawn of creation as it was remembered. Now, as Saturn came close to the Sun's electrical circuit, it began to suffer um, uh, adjustment problems. And this is one of the things that's been noticed about brown dwarfs and has puzzled astronomers is that they tend to flare. That's their only way of adjusting to their environment. So proto-Saturn flared up, and that was the, the sudden uh, brightening, this, this, this um, let there be light, you know. Mm. Suddenly <laughs> everything lit up brilliantly. And the, um, this, this glow tended to clear somewhat. And as we drew closer to the sun, uh, proto-Saturn itself, the actual physical body proto-Saturn, developed a shining crescent on one side. And because at this stage, uh, proto-Saturn was uh, under this electrical uh, theory of gravity, it tends to get accelerated towards the sun, away from its satellites. So the satellites were strung out behind it, rather like the um, comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. We were sitting in the cometary tail of uh, proto-Saturn. Mm. The plasma environment there was recorded by the ancients and um, they saw these what's known as plasma instabilities and there are about 80 of them but they recorded most of them the ones they tended not to record were the ones that were lethal in other words um, the plasma discharge itself was emitting x-rays of such intensity that uh, anyone out in the open trying to chisel into the rock uh, what they saw in the sky uh, wouldn't have lasted very long right right uh, all of this uh, became evident once we teamed up with um, the plasma physicists. So um, the proto-Saturn was captured by the solar system. Um, in the process, of course, it would have had to encounter, uh, have reasonably close encounters with some of the other bodies in the solar system, and the uh, principal one would have been Jupiter. And it's possible that Jupiter was responsible for dislodging the Earth from this uh, unstable arrangement of um, planets strung out in the line. It's interesting that uh, Venus was observed as being born as part of this phenomenal discharge from proto-Saturn. And so uh, Venus became the archetypal comet in all of these um, ancient stories. In the case of the um, 
Australian Aborigines that was the rainbow serpent that uh, sculpted the surface of the earth. So uh, these things are really, um, you know, <laughs> they, they sound like total fiction, but we have uh, an enormous amount of evidence in favour of them. And what's more, the predictions and the expectations that come from this um, new cosmology are being met uh, regularly uh, with new discoveries. Now, now, how long ago would this have occurred? This is a difficult one, but uh, the last ice age was part of the process. So you're looking around uh, 12,000 years ago, something like that. But of course, the process of adjustment, although it was rapid because there was electrical exchanges involved in transferring energy, and that's part of the stabilization process, that's why the solar system looks like clockwork today. Um, the, uh, the whole thing seems to have taken place uh, around 12,000 years ago, 10 to 12,000, but there would have been uh, repercussions you know, with objects flying around and creating uh, havoc and fear in mankind of another uh, near total wipeout. That was our fear of doomsday. That's where it comes from. And it seems that we, st we still suffer from it today because we seem to always need to have some kind of um, disaster in mind, which we're all going to die from unless uh, some miracle occurs or man can find out a way to fix it. And the climate change is the latest one. It's funny to realise that it's only a few decades ago uh, scientists were telling us we're in for a new ice age. Right, right. But since they don't understand ice ages, that prediction was false as well. <laughs> so what, what was the ice age? The ice age was uh, known as, um, well, it was the Fimble winter of the Nordic gods. It was the twilight of the gods. Uh, it was when we were uh, lost uh, touch with our former sun. Mm. And it's interesting that the words for Saturn, but the names for Saturn are the ones that uh, we, we now have transferred to the sun, like Sol and Helios were originally uh, the names of Saturn. It drifted off and became just a speck of light in the sky. And we had to find our new home in the solar system. That involved electrical adjustment of our orbit um, and uh, also Venus. Venus had to uh, find its place. So between Mars, Earth and Venus, there was a lot of um, uh, activity until we settled down. And so those repercussions would have lasted over thousands of years, possibly down in, into the um, era uh, before, you know, around the time the pyramids were built and so on. All of those uh, major undertakings were in response to man's desperate need to try and establish control over nature again. That was the driving force behind all of that monumental architecture and so on and worshipping of gods and whatnot. What about Gobekli Tepe? Yes, it shows signs of having the same origin. Hmm. Okay. Do you think they were recording devices or worship devices? No, I think in each case it was a, an attempt to try and, as, as man has a tendency to do, try and gain control over nature. Uh, in this case, all they could do was to try and mimic what they'd seen in the sky as if that would somehow appease the, mm. these uh, out-of-control uh, planetary gods. So, was in the Electric Universe theory, you comment on the connections to mythology. Was there a yes. cosmological event that was recorded cross-culturally? Oh, yes, yes, this is the whole thing. Uh, forensic investigation requires that you treat all... Uh, 
um, evidence from different cultures as you would from unreliable witnesses in a, in a, you know, a, a police investigation. But the amazing thing is that when you use that technique, uh, you find uh, that there certain uh, themes occur, doesn't matter where you look, around the world at these ancient cultures. And those ones are the ones that you can be fairly certain. Uh, you, in fact, they're the ones that I've used to try and reconstruct uh, the cosmology of um, you know, the Earth, the solar system, and uh, how it all works. And what themes were these? Like, can you give a, a not either pick one particular culture or a general overview? Oh no, no. Uh, the most ancient ones are the uh, the ones that we uh, pay most attention to, mm. and any uh, references to what they said or wrote or chiselled into rock is what we use. In fact, the um, the petroglyphs, which are prehistoric, um, were some of the most um, telling evidence that we uh, could find for what we reconstructed independently of the plasma physicists. So um, that was really, I think, that was where the convergence really uh, be, began to um, solidify into a coherent theory, both uh, scientific and cultural. What did the petroglyph show? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, what did the petroglyphs show that were chiseled? Oh, the petroglyphs show, for instance, the, um, the squatter man symbol. Now, the squatter man uh, looks like uh, a chap with his legs and arms out at right angles, you know, uh, arms upraised and uh, his uh, legs stretched out. And the odd thing is that between the elbows and the knees, there is often a, a spot drawn or a circle. Now, the hourglass shape, which is what the squatter man is, a representation of looking through a plasma discharge from side on, um, that has that squatter man shape. It has the raised, um, it's like an hourglass, you know, with the uh, one, the top part is, uh, stretches out and upwards and the bottom half stretches downwards and outwards. But in the plasma discharge, you have a... Um, a circle of plasma around the center and that appears when you look at it edge on as two bright dots or circles between the the knees and the elbows if you like now this is repeated around the world and there are hundreds of thousands of these petroglyphs dotted around the world and uh, so a study was begun by the chap who was the um, Tony Peratt who was the expert in plasma instabilities he'd studied them and uh, so he began uh, an investigation utilising the uh, help of volunteers in various countries, including uh, quite a few here in Australia, uh, of recording photographically and with GPS the position and the uh, magnetic orientation of these things with the aim of being able to reconstruct in 3D the uh, appearance of these things in the sky. Wow. Okay. All right. And, and that study showed what? Well, one of the interesting uh, ones that came up in the early studies was that uh, you have a radiating circle uh, pattern which was uh, used by uh, the North American Indians. 
And it was possible to show that uh, we had here in Australia a similar, well, it was almost identical uh, pattern, but it was offset, as you would expect, from the two different points of view on the Earth's surface. So, in other words, what they were representing was something seen in the sky from two different positions on Earth. Wow. And those patterns were those of a plasma discharge. You've just given us an overview of the... uh the, the concept of, of the destruction that happened at the end of the Ice Age and what, what and us being attached to Saturn and so on and so forth, this wasn't saying you came up with overnight. This was saying that slowly developed over a number of years. Oh, yes. Decades. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, did, and some of this started with Velikovsky's work, too, didn't it? That's right. Uh, in fact, I give credit to Velikovsky for having uh, introduced me to the forensic style of investigation of um, ancient stories from around the world. And uh, his idea that uh, Venus was a comet within the memory of mankind and my uh, great interest in astronomy as a, uh, a student at uh, high school uh, really inspired me to read more and uh, it resulted in uh, meeting up with him, actually, just a few months before he died in 1979. I, visited, I was working for the Australian government in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I called his home, and uh, he graciously agreed to uh, uh, meet with me and my family. And so I drove up there in 1979. I think it was in uh, April. And I think he died in November of that year. But mm. my question for him at the time was, if uh, Venus was a comet in um, uh, man's memory, then it, it's quite obvious we don't understand uh, celestial dynamics uh, because you wouldn't end up with the clockwork solar system you see today. Right. And I said to him the, the biggest problem that he faced with uh, having his ideas looked at seriously by scientists was that it appeared to uh, disobey Newton's laws, Newton's law of gravity and so on. And so I said to him, what is it we don't understand about gravity? And he went, uh, climbed the stairs to his uh, library and came back with a slim volume that he'd written back in the 30s, I think it was published in the 40s, called Cosmos Without Gravitation. And he said, it was a preliminary work and he didn't want it widely distributed, but he gave it to me and in there was the idea that gravity had something to do with normal matter and uh, the separation of charge within normal matter. Now, this happens as a regular... I mean, this is the reason we exist, is uh, that atoms distort when they come close to one another and they form these molecular bonds and, and quite a lot of them, most of them, are these distorted atom-type um, electrical bonds and so he said it was something along those lines and there were a lot of ideas that put forward which uh, interested me but that meant uh, that I had if you like uh, a prepared mind because two years later I think it was in uh, the Scientific American in 1981 I think it was January there was a tiny advertisement for the Journal of Classical Physics and uh, the chap in, uh, responsible for it was uh, Ralph Sansbury, an, an independent researcher from um, uh, New York State. 
And so I wrote to him uh, and I got a copy of his uh, issue, which was called Electron Structure. Now, according to the way physicists, particle physicists handle electrons, they're treated as a point electric charge, which is physically impossible because the energy involved in, uh, I mean, a point is non-physical anyway. So it's a mathematical convenience. Um, and that interested me because that offered a... Uh, as Ralph Sansbury showed in his uh, uh, small volume, it showed that you could explain magnetism and derive Ampere's law from the very simple idea of having an electron with a kind of atomic structure. In other words, it was made up itself of smaller charged particles orbiting at phenomenal speeds. One of the uh, other aspects of that was that it also gave a handle on how gravity might work in terms of this tiny distortion of subatomic particles in an electric field, and he uh, developed that, and I was very interested, but it took decades for me to um, come up with a, an old, a slightly modified version of Ralph's work, um, which I felt answered most of the questions, and it, it started to form the idea of an electrical, the electrical nature of gravity. Mm. And it answered the main questions. Why is gravity such a tremendously weak force? I mean, it's about 10 to the minus 39 of the electrical force between uh, two charged particles. And that is as close to zero as you can get, practically. Right. <laughs> and it's the reason why we're not reduced to uh, something a, a micron thick on the surface of the Earth. Uh, you know, if we were subjected to the raw electrical force, Instead of that, we can jump off the Earth. We can function quite happily in Earth's gravity. Um, so the, um, the development of all of these ideas came initially from Velikovsky's work and because it involved the trying to reconstruct what the ancients were desperately trying to tell us with their stories and the uh, people like the Australian Aborigines with their oral traditions seem to have remembered details for thousands of years. They felt it was extremely important to hand this information down to subsequent generations. The problem for us is that none of the things they were talking about make any sense to us simply because we, we've never experienced anything like it. Right. And hopefully we, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> now, how but, um, go ahead. When, uh, when we were removed from this environment around Saturn, how come we hmm. didn't end up like Mars? Well, we could very well have, but Mars, interestingly enough, uh, the ancients uh, described exactly its situation. We, after um, Saturn gave birth to Venus in a, a brilliant outburst, like a, a nova type um, outpouring of material, it went into orbit initially about um, proto-Saturn, and because it was born from proto-Saturn, it was given a backward kick, that's why it has an odd rotation, a mm. retrograde rotation, because it was torn from its parent before it had time to set up a, a gravitational phase lock. Anyway, uh, the ancients witnessed that, but when Saturn began to be accelerated towards the sun, it was pulled like a pip out of the centre of the sun, its little planetary system, and its, uh, its um, satellites trail behind. Closest to Saturn was Venus, it was the, the newborn one, uh, beyond that was Mars, and then there was Earth. Now, Mars was in the unfortunate situation in this uh, plasma discharge from Saturn of acting as an oscillating charge carrier between uh, Venus and Earth. So sometimes it 
was tiny uh, and it seemed to be retreating into its mother's womb. And you know, there's a lot of stories about that. And uh, then at other times it approached the earth closely, so closely that uh, it must have been absolutely frightening. Um, and then it was the giant. It was the giant that, uh, you know, supported the heavens and um, fought with thunderbolts. It was the planetary god of war. And um, so it suffered terribly. And the evidence for that is written all over its surface now. Uh, it has kilometres of material ripped off its uh, northern hemisphere and it has a cratered southern hemisphere and it's the kind of difference you would expect from the electrical model of discharging, uh, acting as a cathode in one discharge in one hemisphere and an anode in the other is exactly what would give you the effects we see. The giant gash across the face of Mars, which stretched for a third of the way around the planet, Bellus Marineris, uh, was observed by the ancients and recorded. Uh, you know, Mars was uh, had a scar, had a scar face. The American Indians called him Scarface. A couple of things I wanted to get to before the end of the show here. Um, one of the things was uh, previous ice ages that the Earth went through. What was happening mm -hmm. in those instances versus the most recent one? Well, the um, one of the questions is how did we survive uh, if we came in from outside the solar system and then were stripped off uh, from proto-Saturn? Yeah. Uh, maybe somewhere between uh, Mars and Jupiter's orbit. Where, where we find the asteroids is likely where a lot of activity occurred because the asteroids are debris from that kind of a, event. And... Um, uh, so, one of the things is that in the process of uh, orbital capture, the electrical model shows that it's transfer of electrical energy which is involved in stabilizing the orbit. And that electrical energy would have had heating uh, power. It would have heated uh, the Earth to some degree. So, although the radiation from the sun at times would have been uh, very, um, very much less than we get right now, at some point in our orbit, it'd be like having a cometary orbit with uh, terrible winters and terrible summers. And that is uh, what the ancients complained about uh, at various times, about the sun being too far away or too too um, close hmm. and the sky having to be lifted. There are a lot of stories like that. But don't, um, don't we have a cycle of ice ages, though, that go back uh, hundreds of thousands of years? No, what we tend to do is... Um, because of the clockwork Newtonian model, there is this tendency to look for cycles which don't actually exist. Okay. The, the problem is that um, the very act of trying to date things geologically uh, is based on radioactive dating. Now, radioactive dating assumes that radioactive uh, decay is a constant process. Right. But if there's any interference from outside, particularly with the energies involved in cosmic thunderbolts, then the, the clocks are, are smashed, they're reset. Uh, all sorts of strange things uh, will happen. And also it's been shown recently that uh, radioactive decay is not a constant. It depends on the environment. And even the sun affects radioactive decay, our relationship to the sun. So um, we cannot use radioactive decay as an accurate dating system. Uh, just a quick question. Could you explain what a cosmic thunderbolt is? Cosmic thunderbolt is uh, an electrical discharge between celestial bodies, um, two planets, and uh, it doesn't take the form of normal lightning because lightning in the Earth's atmosphere is a, a thin filamentary type of discharge. In uh, space, what happens is you get um, 
a thing, it, it forms a structure in, in, um, in a near vacuum. An electrical discharge will organise what matter is in that vacuum to uh, form a structure called a plasmoid. And this is the kind of thing that was done, or the w experimental work was done on um, uh, decades ago in the early uh, decades of the 20th century. Uh, it's just unfortunate that plasma physics took a while to uh, get off the ground compared to um, the uh, you know, standard physics and therefore a lot of the ideas about what the sun is and so on were set in place by people who knew nothing about plasma physics, which is unfortunate. Now, like the, the scar on the planet Mars, that would have been done from a cosmic thunderbolt. Yes, absolutely. Yes. In fact, I've written on my website um, a description of what happened because it took me a long while to figure out what it was precisely that was uh, represented by that scar because it has a distinctive shape. Mm -hmm. and, and that shape became clear to me when NASA published a picture uh, showing the um, uh, topography in different colours. And then I realised that that shape is that of a barred spiral galaxy. And in uh, plasma cosmology, a barred spiral galaxy is the uh, grandest form of electrical discharge in the universe, in the visible universe. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is a little bit off from what we've been talking about, but does the electric universe theory um, have any consequence on theories of consciousness? Yes. How so? Because at the very heart of the particle physics of the electric universe is the fact that all matter in the universe is connected in real time, effectively, at least in the local universe. Obviously, it cannot be uh, of infinite speed, but it's certainly far in excess of the speed of light. And the other thing is that uh, so-called quantum uh, events are merely the um, instantaneous resonant interactions between atoms, molecules, and particles. And uh, this, this explains a lot of the so-called weirdness and strangeness of quantum theory. And of course, quantum theory is being called on to help explain consciousness. So it, it gives you the impression, and it's an impression, that uh, we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves, and that consciousness is a part of it. And it's not just um, it's not in the brain. It's it's uh, it's everywhere. If you like, we're part of something grander than ourselves because uh, we represent uh, a connection with the, uh, if you like, um, intelligent universe. Mm. Okay. Uh, question from the chat room. Someone wants to know if you would say consciousness is then inherently electrical. Oh yes. Yeah. It is an electric universe, and I mean that not just at the. Uh, you know, the planetary interactions and so on. But at the subatomic level, everything is connected electrically. It's the electric force which explains all the others, magnetism, gravity, the strong nuclear force and so on. It's all electrical. Okay. And Cosmo Snake would also want to, wanted to know uh, if plasmoids came from space or also from the Earth. Uh, they can do either. Um, it depends on the polarity of the, the discharge, which way it goes. But um, the plasmoid is, it's like a, uh, it was described by the ancients who witnessed these things or remembered them as like a coal spat out of a fire. In other words, it, it's an object. It has a, um, a physical appearance and it moves from one planet to the other. 
So uh, it's not like a lightning bolt at all. In fact, if you look at the carvings, uh, the statues and that of Zeus hurling his thunderbolt, that, that thunderbolt that he's hurling looks like a football-shaped corkscrew. Right. That is a, that is uh, one representation. Another one is the uh, Tibetan Dorje. The, uh, it looks like a dumbbell with a very intricate pattern. That intricate pattern is part of the plasma discharge. Hmm. All right. Um, you have any anything you want? Uh, maybe if we could touch back upon an electrical model for a star. Uh, I've always been under the impression that we've observed thermonuclear reactions coming from the sun and uh, can measure its radiation. How does the electric universe theory kind of mix in with that or, or does it? Yes, thermonuclear reactions occur at the sun but not in the sun. Uh, okay. the, the brightness that we see of the sun is all atmospheric, got nothing to do with anything going on inside the sun. Um, the electrical energy that the sun receives is um, catalyzed by in the, in the solar atmosphere. In fact, we have seen, I mean, the evidence for the thermonuclear reactions is the neutrinos that we uh, receive. But that's such a fuzzy image, you cannot tell where they're coming from. I mean, just, the sun is just at the centre of this fuzzy image. Right. Uh, so it's, there's never been any proof of the uh, uh, reactions that are supposed to take place in the centre of the sun. It's, it's all theoretical. And not only that, the theory is so damn complicated that you need a different theory for every different kind of star that you see. Uh, it is extremely complicated. The electrical model is very simple and it explains uh, red giants, white dwarfs, uh, pulsars, they're not neutron stars, there's no such thing. Um, and it's all one simple model. Um, okay. Cosmo Snake also wanted to know, Is there? this is a great question, is there a main electrical source emitting from somewhere or is the sun producing electricity itself? That's a good point. Um, one thing about electrical energy is that you can generate it in one place and send it for you know, great distances and then use it somewhere else. And this is what the universe appears to be doing. We cannot say, uh, this is part of the um, ongoing investigation, of course, where the power ultimately comes from. It's like one of those uh, where did it all begin questions. Mm -hmm. We don't know the answers. We can begin to ask more sensible questions, however. Um, what happens is that uh, clouds of plasma, ionised material in the universe, when it's moving relative to other clouds of ionised material, will generate electric currents in each other. So that can be part of the answer, but it's not the full answer because when we look at galaxies themselves, the galaxies are, are strung along uh, intergalactic power lines. We can actually detect the power lines by um, the radio emissions and so on and also the orientation of galaxies, which is not explained by uh, Big Bang cosmology. Now, it's almost like a string of Christmas lights. That's right, yes. They're strung along power lines, just the same as the stars are in spiral galaxies. They're strung along the um, spiral arm power lines. Hmm. All right, and uh, I, I would think that different suns and different, uh, like the red dwarf, or a, a brown dwarf versus a red giant, is a uh, difference of how much power they're getting? Yes, it's the uh, difference between the um, central object's electrical potential and the plasma environment it happens to find itself in. And a red giant is a star that uh, expands its anode, if you like. Um, this is how it works anyway. It expands its anode to connect, off, uh, sorry, to collect enough electrons 
to satisfy the discharge. And in doing so, it, it appears an ex extraordinary size. Uh, but that size can vary quite rapidly and unexpectedly, and uh, it's not explained by the standard model of red giants. Uh, they also tend to have very strong winds. Now, these are a cool star. Where do they get the strong wind from? Mm. Well, the strong wind, um, when you ex uh, expand the anode glow, it accelerates particles, and that accelerate, those accelerated particles uh, create that uh, strong wind from red giants. And when you come to white dwarfs, a white dwarf is a star like uh, the sun, but it doesn't have a bright photosphere. It doesn't require a photosphere to um, modulate its discharge, so it just has a corona. And that faint white glow that we see during a total eclipse is what a white dwarf is. It uh, radiates strongly in X-rays rather than in visible light, and this is what we observe with white dwarfs. And what about supernovas? Supernovas are an electrical explosion. Um, when you break a circuit on a high-voltage power line, and you can see videos of these on uh, YouTube, uh, say a 500,000-volt, half-million-volt uh, intercontinental power line, um, you get this enormous uh, release of energy and this great spark that arcs for metres up into the air. That's what happens to a star if it breaks the circuit. And you can do that in plasma physics uh, with what's called a double layer. And a double layer can actually pinch the current off if it gets to a certain uh, density. And it seems that um, a supernova is one where the electrical discharge causes an imbalance in the electrical uh, stress inside the body so that it actually spews its insides out. And this is exactly what's been observed and has puzzled supernova experts because they said it seems to turn itself inside out. Mm. And that's not, expla not explained by the uh, explosion model. When you're looking at all this stuff, when you're looking into deep space, are you seeing a direction from which all these electrical charges are traveling? You, it's the radio astronomers that are important here because the radio astronomers can track the magnetic fields generated by those electric currents. And uh, one of the speakers at the uh, conference this year, Ignacio Cisneros, is actually, um, uh, he's doing uh, what they call the blink, you know, we uh, superimpose two images and then just blink from one to the other. Mm. And he's finding changes in um, dust clouds. These electric currents tend to aggregate dust along their length, so you can sometimes pick them up as uh, dusty filaments. And he's doing that and showing them changing rapidly over a short period of time, which is not expected gravitationally. Oh, all right. Well, we're just about out of time. Uh, your site is hollowscience.com. That's right. The The main Thunderbolt site is thunderbolts.info, and the uh, EU 2015 Paths of Discovery is in Phoenix from the 25th to the 29th of June with a list of speakers you went over at the beginning that is just amazing. Yep. This is one of the good things, too. We're attracting uh, all sorts of... Uh, Scientists and engineers and lay people who, some, some of them actually doing experiments in their garage, would you believe? <laughs> but you do have a lot of accredited scientists behind this theory as well, including yourself, obviously. Well, that's right. This is what we expected. We didn't expect an overnight acceptance of any of this. It's just a case of those scientists who are you know, the real scientists, the ones who are looking for the truth. We'll see... Uh, which side better answers their problems, and eventually uh, those with the courage will make the jump. All right. Well, I thank you so much for spending some time with us, Wallace. Yeah. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And good luck with the conference. Thank you.
You have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.